Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. The amount of time and energy that Yeats devoted to his Celtic mysteries and related activities is not reflected in the brief accounts found in The Trembling of the Veil and the first draft of the autobiography, which was The Speckled Bird done in three varieties, three versions of it, that is. Nor did his project involve only Maud Gon and George Pollexfin. As the retrospective accounts suggest, in actual fact, Yeats began as early as 1887. The lines of thought concerning Ireland that were to lead to him eventually to create the Celtic mysteries and, later still, his mature style of poetry, that is mainly referring to the development out of romantic poetry into early modern verse, along with his buddies T.S. Eliot and one-time roommate Ezra Pound. Many letters, published and unpublished, show that Yeats hoped to involve, among others, George Russell, A.E., William Sharp, who wrote under a spiritual pseudonym of an alternate personality, Fiona MacLeod, Dr. and Mrs. E.A. Hunter, Florence Farr, and most particularly McGregor and Moyna Mathers. Yeats's involvement with the occult began by his own account before he and his family left Ireland in May of 1887 for their long stay in London. The study of mystical philosophy and psychical research helped Yeats to break away from his father's influence. He fed his curiosity on theosophy and hermeticism. After Yeats moved to London with his family, his interest in the spiritual received impetus from the great occult revival of the 80s and 90s. Reynolds' collection of the young Yeats's letters to the New Island, 1889 to 1891, contains references to the activities of the theosophists Colonel H.S. Olcott and H.P. Blavatsky, the Pythoness of the movement. (laughs) In quotes, and to Yeats's own study of the Kabbalah, which in turn reminds the reader that when that note was written in 1891, Yeats had been a member of the Golden Dawn for a year. And he would have been uh, 25 at that time, 26 in 1891. 
Yeats had been a member of the Gondon for a year, in constant contact with the great occultist and translator of the Kabbalah Denudata, McGregor Mathers. These early references to the occult, however, are not as frequent as those references to Yeats' belief in the need for a specifically Irish literature, quote, a neo-romantic movement founded on Irish myth and history, as he wrote in 1887. In letters to the New Island, Yeats sketched out his plan, encouraging others to believe that creative work was, has, always, has always a fatherland. Throughout these letters, Yeats gave the highest marks to those Irish writers who were able to treat Irish subjects subject with sufficient respect. <clears throat> it had been massively marginalized for, of course, 800 years during the English occupation of Ireland, and much of Yeats's Celtic project was to bring back a Celtic renaissance worldwide, which, as of the debut of Enya, the Celtic tiger, the economic boom in Ireland, and mass hysteria and love for all things Celtic and Irish in the 90s and onward, I'd say he definitely accomplished that task. <clears throat> Although the homesickness of the young Celt in London may have encouraged this literary nationalism, commitment sustained it. Until in 1891, Yeats was able to write without much exaggeration with Irish literature and Irish thought alone, have I to do. He had taken the first step in hammering out his thoughts into unity. When did Yeats, when did Yeats make the synthesis that joined in his mind things Irish and literary with things spiritual? While it is, of course, impossible to say precisely when this happened, I believe that Yeats was beginning to see the spiritual possibilities of Irish myth at about the same time he publicly proclaimed himself to be an Irish writer on Irish subjects. A good poem for that reference is The Rose to Ireland in the Coming Times. Um, he references the red rose bordered hem as a reference to his English upbringing that he was trying to escape from fully and return to Irish cultural national subjects exclusively. He had, he wrote, been reading Pater's Marius when he decided that it was not, <clears throat> quote, in Yeats's words, written my bond. Yeats says, with Irish literature and Irish thoughts alone have I to do, and yet the doctrines I have just been studying in Potter's jeweled paragraphs, the Platonic, <clears throat> the, sorry, the Platonic theory of spiritual beings having their abode in all things without and within us, and thus uniting all things as by a living ladder of souls with God himself have some relation to those very matters of Irish thought that bring me to Ireland just now. <clears throat> Yeats had turned to gather stories, had returned to gather stories of spiritual Ireland, the Irish phantoms and fairies. Are not, and are not these spiritual beings of Plato but the phantoms and fairies of philosophy? Yeats was beginning to feel that from the national one approached the universal, the universal, and from the universal one approached the divine, and he wrote to the Providence Sunday Journal in 1888, same year the Golden Dawn was founded, <clears throat> to the greater poets everything they see has its relation to the national life and through that to the universal and divine life. Nothing is an isolated art artistic moment. There is a unity everywhere. Everything fulfills a purpose that is not its own. The hailstone is a journeyman of God. The grass blade carries 
the universe upon its point. One can only reach out to the universe with a gloved hand. That glove is in one's nation. That glove is one's nation. The only thing one knows even a little of. This synthesis of nationalism and philosophy may have begun the plan laid down long, long ago, as he said. Yeats continued to pursue his somewhat vague object by training himself to see visions and to comprehend the relationship or correspondences which exist between material and spiritual worlds and between the various groups of symbols. Eventually, he formed the idea of creating a specifically Celtic religion. Exactly, that would basically be Neo-Druidism in, in essence. Exactly when this idea came to him, I cannot say, but Yeats realized that his own seership would be inadequate to the task. <clears throat> I'm not sure why he thinks about that, but... Thus he sought the help of all those to whom visions came easily. Ah, oh, there you go. He was, in fact, experimenting with visions as early as October 1891-92, when he and Dorothea Hunter, another GD member, met now and then that they might summon the invisible powers and gaze into the astral light, for they had learned to see with the, Indian, with the internal eyes. With Miss Hunter, Yeats called up the tree of knowledge and life, studied the occult meaning of the zodiac, and saw the burial of the Egyptian dead. Then, tired with the great, they summoned the Irish fairies with a lunar invocation and saw a vision of the white woman, queen of the fairies. By April 1895, having spent the previous six years in occult study and training, Yeats was ready to begin his work on the Celtic religion in earnest. His visit to Castle Rock, which was amid his original plan to be based there and build his castle of heroes, gave his hopes a local habitation. Maud Gon's support further accelerated his work and probably lifted his spirits. It could be argued he was <clears throat> doing a lot of this, especially the angle of Irish nationalism, to win her heart. And he said as much in many cases throughout his writing that if he only could do this, he would uh, win her heart and they would, you know, it was a way to spend time with her. It was a little bit, a little sneaky, but then again, Yeats was a Gemini, so, huh. <clears throat> Spurred by the certainty that he could win Maud for himself while they worked on the Celtic gods, he met with her at every moment of leisure in order to obtain long lists of symbols by means of their, or rather her, visions. Yeats also enlisted the Matherses in this project, the letter dated 16 March 1897 from Moyna Mathers, quoted above, indicates that Yeats had told them in Paris of some of the experiments that he and others had been conducting in London. Footnote, Professor Harper has kindly allowed me to see an unpublished letter from George Russell to Yeats dated early August 1897, offering, quote, success to you in your new work, end quote, and mentioning druids and fairies. Evidently, Yeats began his effort to enlist A.E., who's how George Russell's, Russell's commonly known, at about the same time he tried to interest the Mathers. <clears throat> Moyna apparently told Bailey, the editor of Isis, which was a magazine in France, I believe, Paris, something of Yeats's account of the visions of Celtic forms seen by some of his friends, as Bailey was anxious to speak with Yeats about possible publication of these accounts. He suggested that literary and artistic enthusiasms were running high. Moyna, however, wrote, All this seems splendid, but rather premature, as apparently no work on actual rituals had yet been done, <laughs> and that everyone involved insisted on getting at the absolutely correct symbolism before starting on the more external side of the question. 
Had she been indiscreet and wondered in telling, she wondered in telling so much to such super, uh, such superficial persons. <clears throat> I don't know. Although the account of which Moyna wrote has been lost, the visions of the Celtic forms were probably similar to those conducted by Yeats on 29 December 1898, first January 1898, and another day in January 1898, probably not long after the first of the month. These are the visions presented in Appendix 1. The three explorations produced some exciting results. For example, the letter to Dorothea Hunter, which Yeats wrote immediately following the second session, indicated that Yeats had begun to relate some of the visionary beings to levels of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Quote, I have been shown also that beside Fergus, there are two very old shadows, who are the oldest of the heroic race and represent Keter and Hakma. In other words, he had been shown forms corresponding to the two highest, i.e. most nearly divine, Sephiroth on the Tree of Life. Further, Yeats was beginning to relate the visions to Rosicrucian symbolism and to the Neoplatonic thought of William Blake, who is poetically considered the father of the Romantic poets, by the way. In relating one of the planes of Vision 3 to circular and periodic movement as contra contrasted with capricious and unstable movement, Yeats may have been recalling the Rosicrucian concept of exile and return in quest of the mountain of spiritual ascent, Abbey Agnes, so important in Golden Dawn rituals. <laughs> well, they, they, uh, that, that's not important in Golden Dawn rituals at all. It's important in any order rituals of the RRAC. <clears throat> just like the scrying techniques often mentioned earlier in one of Hanneman's handwriting saying this is not meant to be. Yeats was a bit loose with teaching uh, second-order techniques, apparently to non-initiated people who he worked with for the Celtic Mysteries. There's a footnote that says, Yeats used the mountain in connection with the tomb of our father Rosie Cross in a poem, The Mountain Tomb in Responsibilities. See also blah, blah, blah. Yeats was encouraged to continue in the direction he was going, and he wanted to enlist the aid of one of his oldest and closest friends, George Russell, A.E. He wrote on 22nd January, soon after the explorations, that he was deep in Celtic mysticism and that it was forming an elaborate vision, as indeed it was. He had planned, he wrote, to go with Maud to Ireland on 20 or 23 February and wanted Russell to meet him there in order to work on the Celtic mysticism together. Russell, however, was at the time without vision or inspiration, as he wrote informing Yeats on 1st February. Which is in bulk, yeah, that's nice. Yeats replied immediately, saying that he and Maud were to be in Dublin the following week. Maud had characteristically changed the date, the better to accommodate political activities. <laughs> of course she did. Quote, we have, 90 <clears throat> we have in 98 work to do. That's a reference to uh, 98 work. It was 1898 and in... 1798, uh, England put uh, an Irish freedom fighter. Uh, yeah, let's leave that out. We don't want to get into that stuff. But Yeats considered that a significant 100-year point um, in 98, which is a very interesting thing. I'll talk about other places about this project and what happened 100 years after that.
with me. Russell, nevertheless, would not or could not become directly involved in Yates' scheme at that time. He had just become director of the Irish Agricultural Cooperative Movement and was no doubt reluctant to take holiday from his new work. Yates persisted, keeping Russell posted on all Celtic developments. Meanwhile, Yates continued corresponding with the Matherses, seeking from them the skillful and systematic help he could not get from either Maud or Russell. On 25th April 1898, he wrote to Lady Gregory from Paris, where he was visiting the Matherses and was buried in Celtic myth. <clears throat> he said that he was expecting visits from Maud and Fiona MacLeod, but a card from Sharp, who was Fiona MacLeod, on 30th April, reported that Fiona had suffered a breakdown in health and could not be coming as planned. <laughs> George Russell, <coughs> sorry, Sharp, um, actually perceived his pseudonym as a different being within himself. So she was sick, but he wasn't. <coughs> the great Celtic gathering to which Yeats looked forward to failed to occur. Yeats did not receive did receive help from Fiona MacLeod in the form of inspiration in the summer of 1898. He mostly took of course a lot of ideas from her novels even before he met the actual uh, Sharp. And, and, oh no. Yeats didn't know MacLeod was Sharp at that time. That's right. He thought Sharp and Fiona MacLeod were two different people. Yeah. Because Sharp, but he suspected, I believe. Anyway, in the form of inspiration in the summer of 1898 when Her Green Fire was published. So, yeah, taking a lot from her books. Yates was taken with it and wrote to tell her so after June. Wow, so he's writing this person not knowing it's this other person who he's friends with. That's quite, that's quite, it'd be hard to get away with that these days with uh, our technology. Yates was taken with it and wrote to tell her so after June. He particularly liked. The herdsman. When Yeats returned to writing the rituals of for the Celtic mysteries, the herdsman was to supply the title of one of the four main officers or initiators of the Celtic rites. It was really like a sort of a kind of a strange spiritual catfishing Sharp was doing as Fiona MacLeod. <laughs> Yeats was being Victorian catfished. Towards the end of 1898, Yeats was in Sligo, seeking help with the Celtic order from his uncle George Plexfin. Yeats recorded notes to their visions on 13, 14, 27, 31, December 1898, 5th, 6th January, and 8th February 1899. Primarily, the visions undertook to explore through Plexfin's clairvoyance the four sacred cities of the Tua, the tribes, the quaternity on which all the rites were based. They were trying to explore the symbolic correspondences with each of the four talismans of the Tua. Most people pronounce that Tuatha, just uh, in case you're wondering what word I'm saying, as they related to the suits of the tarot, compass points, elements, druids, birds, animals, gates, and so on. They no doubt hoped that by filling the initiatory rite of each grade with all the correct corresponding symbols, that a corresponding force such as that of imagination in the case of the fourth grade would be awakened in the candidate. It's very interesting, actually. These visions, which seemingly did not excite as much as the first series, although he did write of them in his autobiography, <clears throat> which is the title of the book by Yates, took place over a period of about two and a half months. <clears throat> the last date 
recorded 8 February, presents a problem, however. If Wade's dating of one of Yates's letters is correct, Yates was in Paris on 4th February visiting Maud. It was a most depressing visit, as Yates wrote to Lady Gregory, because, quote, she had been almost cold with me, though she has made it easy for me to see her. Five days later, Yates had occasion to be even more depressed, for Maud had decided, Yates wrote to Lady Gregory, to return to Ireland to work with the evicted tenants, thereby finally abandoning the Celtic religion for politics. Couldn't see that coming, could you? Uh, Maud gone mad. Maud lost interest in the Celtic mysteries, and although Yeats did not wholly abandon them at this point, his interest too appears to have waned at this time. What could have caused that? He was becoming increasingly involved in theatre business, and most of March, April, and part of May 1899 were taken up with the controversy over the Countess Kathleen, one of his plays that was no doubt staged at the Abbey Theatre. Furthermore, troubles were brewing in the London Temple, <clears throat> Crowley, where Mather's autocratic rule in absentia was creating ill will and talk of expulsion of Mathers as chief. A letter to Yates from Moyna on 29th May 1899 apologizing for the Mathers's inattention to Celtic matters was probably their last correspondence for many years. Yates was, after all, soon to become leader of the Isis Urania rebels about to cast out their chief and occult teacher. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Yeats spent, by his own reckoning, ten years in a vain attempt to find philosophy and to create ritual for the order of Celtic mysteries. Virginia Moore wondered if by vain Yeats meant untrue, unworthy, spiritually impotent, or vain in the sense that the Castle of Heroes remained, as Maud said, a castle in the air. Of course, they were far from untrue, unworthy, spiritually impotent, although the order suffered from external pressures, which were to show Yeats that, as a group, his collaborators simply were not spiritually prepared to undertake a serious effort to institutionalize the Celtic mysteries. Though, when I think about the tarot reading elsewhere in his writings that shows how the Celtic mysteries would fare that year, it's interesting because the Yod position Yod position was um, five of wands. The hay position was the devil. The vav position was temperance, and the if I remember, the hay final position was um, ace of cups. Ace of Wands. Yeah, Ace of Wands. So there was quite a strong indication, I think, from the reading, even in, in, in Pelexven's interpretation, that Yeats's love interests and uh, unwillingness to remove himself from mundane financial life, including order polity, most likely, I would say, uh, would, though ultimately lead to fruition would require a rebalancing and a, a, a you know a tempering of the materialistic focuses of and his uh, his inability to let go of love represented by the five of cups and uh, let go of loss uh, or in a spiritual sense to um, oh, I found a, 
a good insight on that, but I can't remember right now. Anyway. A far more commanding mage figure than Yeats was required to organize and sustain such a group. <clears throat> After the departure of Mathers to Paris, even the Golden Dawn, which by 1892 had been a well-organized and operating unit for four years, failed to maintain a co the cohesion which Yeats felt was essential for a viable occult body. If an order like the Golden Dawn, which as was, as Gerald York observed, the crowning glory of the occult revival in the 19th century could not survive, how then could Yeats's Celtic mysteries? And that is a very excellent question that he was validly concerned about. It, uh, essentially, at one point, Yeats thought the Celtic mysteries, along with Mathers and Moyne, they were, they were thinking of making all the initiations of the Golden Dawn Celtic rather than using Egyptian mythology. But then they decided to make a separate Celtic order that was an outer, outer order or a corollary order to the golden dawn similar very very similar in how dion fortune later came along and created the society of inner light as an uh, outer outer layer of uh, uh, tertiary outer order to the inner order and uh trying to draw people in through even more diluted teachings of course that became something else in itself entirely uh rising with fortune dion fortune's fame fortune's fame the Golden Dawn was based on hundreds of years of arcane tradition. Its rituals, in which could be found something for nearly every taste, were monuments of occult eclecticism. The Celtic mysteries, by contrast, were based on the Golden Dawn at one remove and on Celtic mythology, itself a narrow, if spiritually rich, mixture of scholarship and vision. Furthermore, Yeats and his collaborators lacked Mather's skill in writing initiatory rites. As a comparison of the Celtic mysteries initiations of the spirit and Mather's portal and Adeptus Minor rites quickly shows. Yeats was, after all, a poet, not a priest, although he liked to think the two synonymous. Well, I believe Yeats did help compose the 6 equals 5 and 7, 4 initiations and also rewrote all the outer initiations and added a lot of the poetry that exists in the Stella Matutina scripts found in Rigardi's publications. So I'm not so sure if Yeats wasn't good at writing initiations. That might just be he felt he wasn't good at writing them. Uh, or I don't know. It's an interesting point that deserves a lot more uh, scrutiny. It's so easy to gloss over these these uh, statements, these exegesis of, of of the facts that we know, and we think, oh, well, he couldn't have been that good at it. It's very easy to write off Yeats' skill um, in a lot of areas. Just like it's easy to write off all these characters for their weaknesses, which we know much more about than their strengths. Most people don't usually write letters praising all of someone's strengths. Usually they write letters complaining to others about some other person's crappy weaknesses and failings and flaws so that's what we got <clears throat> thus the most important and result thus the most important end result of the celtic mysteries was not their insignificant contribution to the occult revival of the turn of the century but their very considerable impact on yeats's life and work it's probably true occult celticism was so important to yeats in fact that he made it the focus of his only attempt at novel writing that's the speckled bird, yeah. Like the mysteries themselves, the speckled bird was never finished, but Yeats was reluctant to abandon it. It contained much of himself. There currently is a critical edition out, it's a couple hundred, few hundred dollars, uh, that has all three versions with notes. Uh, yeah, 
as you know, scholar, or several. Uh, I wish I had it. As William H. O'Donnell noted in the preface to his edition of the novel, some of the events and characters are strongly reminiscent both of the author's unsuccessful labors on the Castle of Heroes and of the Golden Dawn's revolt in 1900 against McGregor Mathers. The novel repays a close look for what it reveals on Yeats's attitude towards the mysteries and the events of his life which surrounded them. The hero of the novel, Michael Hearn, who is clearly a heightened self-portrait of the author, plans with Samuel McLaughlin, <laughs> who is obviously patterned closely on Mathers, to create an order which will establish a new kind of worship in which the calling up of the spirits of water and fire and air will be very important. McLaughlin seeks to create a new Eleusis, but Hearn, influenced by a number of visions reminiscent of some of those experienced in the Celtic explorations of 1898 18, to 1899, insisted that it be not founded on Egypt or Greece, for they must make the land in which they lived, i.e. Ireland, a holy land. In this, McLaughlin was agreeable, for he was a Highlander and had ideas about the Celtic races. They would, be found, they would found a society to bring back the gods, which would have, its foundation, the grail, have as its foundation the grail stories. Hearn would supply the needed grail symbolism acquired in the numerous visions, while McLaughlin would put all his magical knowledge into it and into the teaching that was given to initiates, and more would come to them in dreams and visions as they worked, discovering, quote, wonderful correspondences between the earth and all that is above it. That is a great indicator of the as-below-so-above argument I'm making in my new Hermeticism book. Because people have been not paying close attention to Latin, their Latin. Ha ha, fucking idiots. <clears throat> it may be accurate to say that Yeats's novel gives a fairly clear picture of the way Yeats and Mathers work together, first on the Golden Dawn matters, but also on the Celtic mysteries, which are blended together into one order in the novel. Together they, quote, wrote out abstracts of various old methods of evocation or new methods made by the old plan, and they spent days studying and writing out abstracts of Eastern systems of contemplation. As they worked, they got sometimes in dreams, sometimes in waking illuminations, successions of new symbols or elaborate and subtle doctrines. It's an extract from The Speckled Bird. But even more autobiographical than this is Hearn's relationship with Margaret Henderson, who is clearly a portrait of Maud Gone. She, in fact, supplies the motivation for Hearn's work on the mystical rites in much the same way that hope of winning a fair woman motivated Yeats to building a vague dream of impossible adventures in which she had a chief part. In the excitement following a splendid vision of the girl with bronze-like hair, whom he saw floating with her feet a few inches above the sea, Hearn feels that his life had begun and everything was certain. He would marry Margaret and they would dam up the stream of the world and make it flow into a new bed. He rhapsodizes her, I shall make a little kingdom, a part of the great kingdom to come, and I will ask her to sit beside me as its queen. We will only make a beginning but centuries after we are dead cities shall be overthrown. It may be because of an air that we have hummed or because of a curtain full of meaning that we have hung upon a wall. 
Yeah, that is some awkward prose for a novel. Oh, well. That's probably why he wrote three versions and never finished it. Like Maud, however, Margaret refuses to become high priestess in Hearn's religion. <laughs> Instead, she marries the rough-and-ready Captain John Peters, modeled on Maud's husband, John McBride. Maud married McBride on 21st February 1903 in Paris. The marriage ended in dear two years, ending in 1905. Like Maud, however... Oh yeah, the marriage is not a success, and after a year, she sends for Michael. <laughs> oh, Yates... When her friend Harriet St. George gives Michael both the news of the marriage and the summons, he cries out, Oh, why did she marry? I was doing everything for her. You cannot think what a great work I have been doing here, and it was all for her I was doing it. Well, that basically tells us pretty clearly why Yeats was perhaps dedicated so much to the Celtic mysteries. The things we do for love. Of course, when Michael Hearn says his... Of course, what Michael Hearn says is not altogether an accurate reflection of his motivation in creating the order. Like Yeats, Hearn was striving to embody <clears throat> in ritual and symbolism the eternal truths of the broken race that still remembered the reveries of ancient herdsmen among woods and waters. He had been seen the queen of the fairy, uh, fairy in visions. He had seen the queen of the fairy in visions and therefore knew that certain truths still lingered in the legends of the common folk. The fishermen of today, he wrote, talk of the same things the shepherds talked of before there was a town in all Europe. He wanted to share their thoughts and emotions, but with more subtlety and delicacy in order to have the wisdom of Odysseus as distinguished from modern wisdom. <laughs> the rites he was to create would be an outward manifestation of the inward condition revealed through symbol and the beauty of design. Hearn wanted Margaret as Yeats wanted Maud, as the jewel in the crown he was fashioning for himself. When Margaret sends for him after a year of marriage, Hearn entertains hopes that she wants him to take her away. Instead, she tells him she loves him with a sisterly, sister's love. They do, however, reach a greater intimacy than they had had before, achieving a spiritual marriage not unlike that experienced by Yeats and Maud under similar circumstances. As the two wander the hills of Glenna, Glennamashie, Yeats was notoriously bad Irish, Margaret says, if only you could meet in the spirit, if we could get out of our bodies and meet in the spirit. I often dream of you and I think dreams are realities. Sounds like Yeats <laughs> talking about Maud rather than the other way around. It just doesn't seem like she was very attracted to him. At last, Margaret can endure her marriage to Peters no longer, and she asks Michael to take her away. They make plans to meet in Galway and to go from there to Dublin and from Dublin to France, but the plans go awry. Margaret, finding herself pregnant and unable to take her as yet unborn child from its father, resigns herself to her fate and cancels the escape. Footnote, Margaret's pregnancy and her unwillingness to leave her husband because of it is a reflection of circumstances surrounding Maud's pregnancy. She refused to leave McBride until after the birth of Sean McBride. How different times would have been if women had some form of, uh, you know, birth control. Meanwhile, Hearn and McLaughlin have a disagreement 
have a disagreement based on some very real, real philosophical differences. As McLaughlin put it, he had come to recognize that Hearn was not a magician, but some kind of an artist, and that the summum bonum itself, the, the potable gold of our masters, was less to him than some charm of color or some charm of words. Harsh. Or as Yeats wrote in a note to the novel, the antagonism must be made the antagonism between the poet and magician. It's an interesting theme for a novel, uh, perhaps obtuse to the common reader, um, but interesting, unique. This statement may be as valid an assessment of the primary reason for the real-life disagreement between Yeats and Mathers as it is for the fictional one. For as a poet, Yeats saw all spiritual exercises, including the Golden Dawn and the Celtic Mysteries rituals, as metaphors for poetry. The Celtic Mysteries, as Yeats himself said, had given him endless symbols to his hand. McLaughlin, in contrast, held the practical magician's point of view and actively disliked any ideas which he could not understand. For him, external forms were only to be judged on spiritual, not artistic merits. As Yeats reminded himself in a note to the novel, when Michael and McLaughlin are talking at his rooms, McLaughlin must point out to Michael that his attempts at writing a ritual will not do, as they are too like a play. I have so much to say on that, but I near the now is not the time. As we know, the Celtic mystery rituals that Yeats did create are indeed very like spiritual dramas. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> psychodramas, initiations like Steiner's and all the spiritual mystery plays and initiations have always been like that, so I'm not really sure. Maybe that was Mathers' uh, masonry coming out a bit. Uh, yeah. I don't want to get into that. As indeed the plays he wrote are very like rituals for a long-forgotten religion. That's awesome. Yeats wrote the, in Explorations, on one of his books, that he wanted to create for himself a, an, unpopu an unpopular theater and an audience like a secret society where admission is by favor and never to many. Sounds like a, an initiatory order. Or mystery school. Certainly this desire formed part of Yeats's motivation for creating the Celtic mysteries. His rituals were designed to be powerful dramas, differing from ordinary drama, in that everyone who hears it is also a player. That's from his book Explorations. The novel ends inconclusively. Ten years later, Hearn, on his way to Persia and Arabia, stops off in Paris to visit McLaughlin and his pretty new wife, who, paralleling their real-life models, had developed a cult of Isis and Osiris. Hearn learns from McLaughlin that the London Order had ousted him. Therefore, they had come to Paris to begin again. They, uh, of course, Yeats in real life was part of the ousting of Mathers, and sending them to Paris in his novel. It's interesting that Yeats's version of himself, Hearn, distances himself radically from actually the role he played with Florence Farr uh, in ousting Mathers, mainly to bring back in Annie Horniman, who had been expelled by Mathers for cutting off funding to Mathers. It was ridiculous, Mathers being such a twat. Um, they talked for a while, and the next day, McLaughlin accompanies Hearn to the railway station. After receiving a large check from Hearn, <laughs> McLaughlin grasps his hand affectionately, and the last thing that Michael saw as he looked back towards the platform was McLaughlin watching him with those heroic eyes. Yeah, 
Yates really loved Mathers, but he had principles and didn't like how Mathers was treating his financial backer and friend, Annie Horniman. Though the novel is ultimately unsatisfying, Yates set forth in that last conversation between McLaughlin and Hearn a concept of extreme importance to any understanding of Yeats's philosophy of literature. Like his fictional spokesman Hearn, Yeats had begun to associate natural emotion with the paganism of the Irish peasants. Hearn was convinced now that the symbols of Christianity must be the center expression, central expression, but they must be really Catholic. Men must come to think of Christ as a need to be slain for the foundation of the world and perhaps not slain at all all in Judea. At any rate, Christian mysteries must inhabit every land equally, and above all, they must be reconciled to the natural emotions. He was going to the east now, to Arabia and Persia, where they would, where he would find among the common peoples, people so soon as he had learned their language, some lost doctrines of reconciliation. It sounds like a kid going to India to find himself in his 20s. And then discovering, oh, it's just another country with the same crap and the same mysteries as the place they left. The philosophic poets had made sexual love their principal symbol of a divine love, and he had seen somewhere in a list of untranslated Egyptian manuscripts that certain of them dealt with love as the Palthugic. Yeah, that's a... Un that that's a word from the original manuscript that was not written correctly and it's hard to see what word it was intended Palthugic power in ireland he had found wonderful doctrines among the poor doctrines which had been the foundation of the old irish poets and surely he would find somewhere in the east a doctrine that would reconcile religion with the natural emotions and at the same time explain these emotions all the arts sprang from sexual love and therefore they would only come again in the garb of a religion when that reconciliation had taken place in a letter to the editor of outlook written between 16 and 23rd april 1898 yeats defended his article the broken gates of death fortnightly review april 1898 against the charge of being quote the dream of a poetic folklorist by insisting that the Irish peasant has, has invented, or that somebody has invented for him, a vague, though not altogether unphilosophical reconciliation between his paganism, i.e. the belief of the fairies, and his Christianity. It's actually very true how much in Ireland, even to this day, the blend between pagan gods, worship, and fairies, and Christianity is all blended together in a way that is completely inseparable. It, Christianity is not Christianity like anywhere else as it is in Ireland, and paganism is more Christian than than you could imagine. Similarly, in the same way that Haitian Vudon uh, integrated Christianity like Santeria uh, in their forms when they left Africa and developed in America, and Haiti. Haiti, of course. <laughs> Um, this phrase is perhaps the best single statement of the religious idea, ideal that animated all of Yeats's works from the wanderings of Oshin to the death of Cahullin. And he was to use it to, again, nearly 40 years later in a vision. I did a huge series of lectures on that and breaking down the practical uh, method he very complicatedly describes in that. Unfortunately, the records of those lectures and the notes I made are lost in one of my home robberies. 
And uh, otherwise, I would say some more about a vision here. Further, it offers a key to the symbolism of the Celtic mysteries, rituals, and suggests perhaps Yeats's purpose in the creation of his Celtic rites. And uh, so basically, the, the Celtic rites and initiation in that order were in part designed to reconcile the... Um, officially reconcile the form of Christianity and natural spirituality, that ecological spirituality that comes from the fairies and, and pagan gods and really worship of landscape and sacred sites that is endemic to Ireland and Irish culture and people. I've been dragged in front of statues of Mary in the pouring rain on Inishmore and pleaded with to, to pray to, to the Virgin goddess mary in latin for help that night uh with some old irish folk um walking home from the bar after playing one night to be told to pray to the virgin goddess mary is exactly what i'm talking about that is such an irish demonstration of the way they've inter they integrated all the religions <laughs> when christianity came to ireland of course the druids were probably just like all right so this goes like that now and this goes like that and it's basically all the same thing and the christians were like yeah and the druids were like fair play fucking right let's do it and they, they converted boom no problem they just brought their stuff into the christianity and produced things like the book of kells so amen the celtic mysteries were a stage in the search for a vision of Eden and a style appropriate to express that vision which preoccupied Yeats' entire creative life. This search began with his apprentice works, which were pastoral in the conventional sense and consciously imitative. He was representing older Irish verse forms, ballads and poetry, uh, from sonnets to, you know, Scottish ballads and Irish folk songs. In these, Yeats was fleeing a sordid mercantile world which debased everything it touched, including religion. Poetry, as he then saw it, was to be an escape from the drabness of reality and a sort of buffer against the pressing world. A long poem, he felt, should be a re region into which one could escape from, light, one, from life's cares. The characters should be no more real than shadows. The poems which resulted from Yeats's earliest poetic theorizings were full of longing and complaint. The innocence and peace they offered were out of time and space, unreal and unattainable in this world. They were, as he said, a summon to the, a flight into fairyland and were lacking in insight and knowledge. Even the wanderings of Oshin is nearly pure escapism. Although Nashina, Thurnote, and Arcadia have been replaced with the concrete imagery Characters and place names derived from Irish myth and the settings and mood express the same world sadness and longing for peace in the never-never land that the island of statues did. The early works which emphasized childlike innocence as the ideal were not long satisfying. By 1885, Yeats was beginning to feel that the woods of Arcady are dead and over in their antique joy of all of old the world of on dreaming fed, gray truth is now her painted toy. Very Oran Poems, edition 645. His search for a style was beginning to lead him towards the concept of radical innocence. Sounds like Blake's high innocence, the third state of spiritual maturity. 
the, the state of grace founded on experience and achieved not through turning away from the world, but through immersion in it and transcendence of it. Yeah, that's Blake's high innocence. He was learning to take pleasure in the weed of life as well as the flower. <clears throat> yeah, he did like uh, weed and hashish more than peyote, he mentioned once. Yeats did, that is. Uh, and to find it in it necessary truths apprehendable in no other way. The Celtic mysteries were part of Yeats's effort to establish the state of mind necessary to the attainment of the earthly paradise of the green tree and flowing well. That paradise that is half of the body, an idea which was to form a part of radical innocence. As the rituals themselves state, the candidate is to come to slow, imperishable thoughts, only through the soul's journey in a boat made out of the bones of the dragon, symbol of matter or the material world. Or, as the first stone rite says, the region of the shades, i.e. the Neoplatonist material world, must be passed through, for amongst the shades... The man sees, at last, the true significance of the immateriality of matter. The goal of the Celtic mysteries, as in all initiatory rites, was to assist the quester by means of symbols incorporated into rituals to gain power, but a very particular sort of power, quote, self-contained, self-created, self-sufficing, and the seed, the seed of character. That's from Explorations. There's a footnote. This is the same power that enables one to withstand the roof-leveling wind that produces intellectual hatred in lesser souls. If narrow emotion can be driven hence, Yeats wrote in the beautiful poem, A Prayer for My Daughter, the soul recovers radical innocence and learns at last that it is self-delighting, self-appeasing, self-affrighting, and that its own sweet will is heaven's will. The candidate is directed to look boldly into the mirror of his own soul and to confront without trembling the human horrors there. Well, that reminds me of a certain second-order technique that's never been written down to this day, I believe. For we make a false beauty by a denial of ugliness. Explorations 31. As the variant Cauldron Wright affirms, it is only in the dragon's eye that we can see beyond joy and sorrow. Thus he who would lose the world must first gain it in all its minute particularities. He must follow the four birds which Angus made of him kisses. In the desolation of the world, live out his life. For at the end, my gates are always open. The seeds of the paradox is expressed so well by Crazy Jane's for nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent um, can be found in the sword rite. It's a uh, common idea that Yeats wove into his poetry, uh, the idea of things being broken so they can be passed through, which of course pertains to the Golden Dawn techniques of uh, scrying in the spirit vision traveling as well as the initiatory rites from portal grade and onward. Not to mention the Kabbalistic idea of Tikkun and the shattering of the Sephirotic vessels to form the shells or the klepot, the demons which we must rise up and then reform ourselves from to restore ourselves in as divine beings and humans. So, yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
the tikkun. After the candidate has been told the secret of Angus and Itain, sun and moon, consciousness and unconsciousness, he is told to grasp the sword and go on, leaving the eternal pursuit whilst yet pursuing it for the country where the contraries are equally true. Angus is essential to Etain, who is essential to Angus, as Yin is essential to Yang. But the opposites and contraries exist in homeostasis, not stasis. For that union cannot be, still the pursuit must go on, for life would cease to be life without it. Yeah, he's, this is the, again, the process of energy seen through the serpent and the rise of Nehushtan, the lightning strike and circulation of light on the tree of life, basically as well as represented by the Ouroboros. The reconciliation of paganism, which is of the body, and Christianity, which is of the soul. That's an awful duality that I'm glad we don't... I recommend we not keep that Yeats had. <laughs> occurs just here, with the blending of moon and sun and body and soul in the mingling of earth and heaven. Yeats knew that the blissful escapism of his early pastoralism was a fraud, just as the holiest of men is not he who denies the body is in sweet ignorance, but he who must most revels in it, accepting it and going beyond it to a vision of the unfallen world. Here there's a footnote for an excellent discussion of Yeats's quest for Eden. See George Mills Harper. Um, Yeats' centenary papers. Yeats came to see himself as a new kind of Adam, a poet-priest concerned not with things, but with the essence of things. That's what every second-order adept sees themselves as, because it's part of the initiation. But he who would explore the interior must be as exact as the scientist who explores the exterior. Yeats found himself to be the Adam of, quote, a different, more terrible Eden, for we must name and number the passions and motives of men. There, too, everything must be known, everything understood, everything expressed. There also there is nothing common, nothing unclean. Every motive must be followed through all the obscure mystery of its logic. Mankind must be seen and understood in every possible circumstance, in every conceivable situation, only when we have put ourselves in all the possible positions of life from the most miserable to those that are so lofty that we can only speak of them in symbols and in mysteries, will entire wisdom be possible. And that's a, a profound spiritual idea that uh, underlies, I'd say, most of Western mysticism, if not world mysticism. You must be able to identify with the high and the low. It reminds me of quote in there's a bit in Romans 12 that references that as well as um, the really basic idea of the path of the chameleon uh, which refers of course to the uh, you know what thus achievement of radical innocence completes the circle of destiny the exile returns not to the place of unorganized innocence from whence he started, but rather to a higher level of innocence. Each going forth returns the quest to radical innocence, and with each return the quester rides the spiral a little closer to heaven. Radical innocence is a term Yeats used to describe a state of being quite different from simple or mere innocence. Yeats agreed with Blake that 
oh, there we go, unorganized innocence was an impossibility and that the chief value of life was to transform innocence, which is ignorant of life, into higher or radical innocence, unattainable only by means of immersion in and the subsequent transcendence of life's experience. Blake famously characterized this in his uh, innocence, Songs of Innocence and Experience, um, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night, that represented experience and the downfall of innocence. And ultimately, Blake believed we were going to come back to the beginning, but in a purified form, that being high innocence uh, of later life or later spiritual development. <clears throat> And with each return, the quester rides the spirit spiral a little closer to heaven. So it's a circle. It's the alchemical cycle, the lesser to greater circulation that is repeated over and over to slowly purify the contents of our alembic from lead into gold. Another footnote here. Yeats's speculations on circular and periodic movement were to bear fruit in a number of ways, chiefly in his theory of drama. Yeats associated furious particularity with the theater of commerce of his day against which he hoped to place his symbolic drama with its patterned rather than static and generalized movements. Yeats's dramas were to evoke eternal ancient emotions as contrasted with the momentary emotions of the modern theater. Yeats would have attributed modern theater to the plane of the watery part of the world of waters and that he and Miss Briggs visited in Vision 3 of their Celtic explorations. The airy plane, being the plane of imagination, was the symbolic level of the sort of ritual drama that Yeats himself created. For an excellent discussion of Yeats's views on symbolism of motion, see George Harper Mill's Go Back to Where You Belong, Yeats's Return from Exile, Dublin Dolman Press, 1973. Let's also keep in mind that um, Yeats uh, drew a lot of his understanding of theater from uh, a, the sense of moving, projecting your aura or your energy um, and chanting your lines rather than characterizing them in a mundane day-to-day -day fashion. He wanted them to be magically said, um, almost intoned or chanted. And for motion, he drew a lot from no, Japanese no theater, N-O-H, no drama. To express this athletic worldview, Yeats was forced to search for a worthy style. At first, the trappings of Celticism were merely applied to traditional pastoral landscapes as in Oshin. Actually accepting the implications of an art wedded to rock and hill, i.e. reality, and creating an appropriate style took time. A brief contrast of two plays having something of the same theme will illustrate The Shadowy Waters, 1900, which I actually uh, directed and acted in in... Um, 1998 uh, was the first Yeats play I put on. Begun when Yeats was still quite young, draws heavily on Celtic and Rosicrucian symbolism. I did not actually know that at the time. <laughs> Here's a footnote. Oh, as does his later plays, At the Hawk's Well, 1917. <clears throat> I did nine Yeats plays in three years, from 80, 90, 98 to 2000. Footnote. From uh, among the several variants of this work of Shadowy Waters, I have elected to discuss the one published in 1900 as it is the version to which Yeats was most likely referring when he wrote Dora Sigerson. 
Mrs. Clement Shorter. I am working at my shadowy waters, and it is getting on far better than when I left it aside a couple years ago. Since then, I have worked at Irish mythology and filled a great many pages of notes with a certain arrangement of it for my own purposes. And now I find I have a rich background for whatever I want to do and endless symbols at my hands. I am trying to get into this play a kind of grave ecstasy. It was just about this time, I believe, that Yeats's interest in the Celtic mysteries as rituals began to wane. Instead, he was beginning to see how they could have been incorporated more fully into his art. So this was in 1900, and uh, at the time of the expulsion of Mathers and Moyne, and Crowley's silliness, and Yeats would have been 30 years old. So just wrapping up his Saturn return, of course. Both plays have as one of their themes the love quest, but the quest for the first of the first is very different from the quest of the second. In Shadowy Waters, the hero Forgale, a combination of pirate and magician, searches the northern sea where the world dwindles out to find immortal love, a love that the gods give, that he believes will turn the brief longing and deceiving hope and bodily tenderness to the soft fire that shall burn time when times have ebbed away. He is seeking not the love symbolized by the red hound that is seen in vision, desire, life, and joy, but that of the pale hound and deer, symbols taken directly from Oshin, representing not mortal desire, but the immortal desire of the immortals, like that of Angus and Etain. And in res res this respect, Forgale closely resembles the poet of Shelley's Alastor, who rejects earthly desire to pursue the spiritual ideal. When Forgale's ship meets the beautiful Queen Dectora's richly laden craft, a sailor, sea-weary and longing for his beers and skittles, entertains the futile hope that at last Forgale may find his heart's desire on board and turn his galley about and bring me home. But his hope is lost. Forgale seems to know that his quest is destined to end only in death. I follow the grey wings and need no more of life till the white wings of Angus's birds gleam in their apple boughs. Yet even death will be ultimately unsatisfying, as the birds themselves, souls of the dead, make clear. They continue their quest even after death. Forgale hears them say, Maybe we shall find our heart's desire now that we are so light. I played the character Abrick. Forgale wins Dectira's love by means of enchantment, but then rejects her repeatedly. She cannot turn him from his quest, even though she offers him the joys of physical love, the peace that awakes into in one another's arms. Forgale tells her in the following improbable stanza that the love of all under the light of the sun is but brief longing and deceiving hope, bodily tenderness. But love is made imperishable fire under the boughs of chrysoberyl and beryl and chrysolite and chrysophrase and ruby and sardonyx. Yeah, it's uh, quite a mouthful. Finally, Dectira realizes that if she is to have him at all, she must needs accept his quest as her own. She says, I will follow you, living or dying. Despite his distaste for mortal love, Forgale is forced to accept that he has fallen in love with the mortal Dectira. Nevertheless, in rejecting her once again, he remains loyal to his search for perfect immortal love. The love that seeks valleys and woods and meadows is but a pale reflection of the sort of love Forgale seeks where the world ends. Therefore, De he tells Dectira, I will have none of you, 
My love shakes out her hair upon the streams where the world ends, or runs from wind to wind and eddy to eddy, masters of our dreams. Why have you cloven me with a mortal love? Pity these weeping eyes. Dectera cuts their boat adrift. The last lines of the play reflect the union that is as scornful of the world as that of the lovers of Axel. Bend lower that I may cover you with my hair, for we will gaze upon this world no longer. If they have accepted any destiny at all, it is only that of certain death. Cahalan, the hero of At the Hawk's Well, accepts his death also, but with considerable difference in matter and style. The shift might be said to hinge on the difference between lunar and solar influences. Cahalan, being the solar hero of Celtic mythology, does not reject the love of all under the light of the sun, as Lunar Forgale does. Note, in the 1900 version of Shadowy Waters, Forgale is described as having a silver, in other words, lunar, lily embroidered over his breast. Rather, Cahalan seeks it passionately and violently. That is, uh, in the end of The Death of Cahalan, the last play Yeats wrote before he wrote it on his deathbed, pretty much. Uh, Cahalan runs off and dies battling the indomitable waves. Um, and there's deep mythology to that. I, of course, wrote my song Land of Shadows based on that mythology. Forgale's rejection of passion leads only to certain death. Cahalan's acceptance of passion, on the other hand, leads him directly to his destiny in the world. By the time of this play, Yeats had come to believe that wisdom was less to be sought in the quest which turns the seeker inward and away from the world than in the quest which demands that wisdom be gained through the experience of life in full acceptance of one's fate in the world. I think this is an amazing point. In fact, at about this time, Yeats felt that he was moving from the lunar influences which had dominated the first part of his life into solar influences. That's very Rudolf Steiner anthroposophy, actually. He was becoming a man of action in the world. He was also moving from his romantic style of poetry to developing the early modern style of poetry along with people like Eliot and Ezra Pound. The stark, even brutal style of the second play reflects these changes. The landscapes of the two plays also reflect the shift. At the Hawk's Well is set amid inhospitable rock, as contrasted to the misty seascape of the shadowy waters. The hero is first seen toiling up the barren mountainside, actively seeking the well of immortality and the hazels of wisdom. The images of the well and the mountain... Damn cock. The images of the well and the mountain of spiritual ascent come directly from the Celtic mysteries and the Golden Dawn, and they are in this play organic elements not superseded, as are the red, white, black hounds in the shadowy waters. There is no suggestion in At the Hawk's Well of misty otherworldliness, although this setting suggests the axis mundi. The point at which natural and supernatural worlds intersect. Direction and decision are further suggested in the brief description of how Cahullan arrived at the place. Hearing of the well of the she, she's the Irish word for fairies or the hills because of the connection between the two, over the wine at dawn, the hero found a boat, set sail, caught a lucky wind, and found the shore. The motion, as the telling of it, is direct and purposeful, not aimless and wandering as in the shadowy waters. 
Once arrived at his destination, Cahalan seems certain that he will be rewarded with his destiny, as indeed he is, but not in the way he expects. The old man, who had been watching at the well for fifty years, warns Cahalan of the curse that falls on all who look upon the unmoistened eye of the guardian of the well. The female figure, the guardian, is as much or more a part of Cahalan's fate as Dectira is of Forgales. It's Dectora, but in one of the versions of the play it was Dectira, and that's the one we did. But she is first seen crouching in the cold wind, staring at the dry well with unseeing eyes. Dectora is first seen reclining on embroideries. When the old man foretells Cahalan's fate, that he will kill his own child, the audience, expected to be familiar with Cahalan's story, knows the prophecy will be fulfilled. The hero, unafraid of the guardian, be she bird, woman, or witch, accepts the challenge, meets her eye, and is bewitched forthwith. Forgetting his purpose, Cahalan cries, Run where you will, grey bird, you shall be perched upon my wrist. The water bubbles into the well as Cahalan, chasing the hawk woman, goes out. The musicians note, Yeats has musicians in a lot of his plays singing songs and doing interludes, which is one of the coolest things about them. They're often wearing masks as well. Lots of masks in Yeats' play. Again, a throwback to, or an inspiration from Japanese no theater. He has lost what may not be found till men heap his burial mound and all the history ends. He might have lived at his ease, an old dog's head on his knees, among his children and friends. Unlike the old man whose life has been stolen by his own futile watching and waiting for what never happens, Cahalan pursues fate. When he reappears, the spell has been lifted, and in the distance are heard the cries of Aoife, Aoife. She is the warrior woman who Cahalan is fated to conquer, both in battle and in bed. She will bear Cahalan's child, the son that he will slay in hand-to-hand combat. In the poem that closes at the hawk's well, the well and hazels mock him who would live the better life of wisdom. But Yeats himself said, there is no laughter too bitter, no irony too harsh, nor passion too terrible to be known, for it is only in knowing these that we come to true wisdom. We must rejoice in battle, finding the sweetest music to be the stroke of the sword. By the time Yeats came to write at the hawk's well, before that time, in fact, he had come to the realization that man cannot cure the spiritual malaise simply by romantically bearing his soul to the tempest. One of the interesting differences uh, worth noting here is the difference between uh, the shadowy waters of the inward journey and the outward expression of the lunar and the solar is actually more equivalent to the lesser and greater mysteries and the black and white robe transition from initiate to adept where with the black robe you're absorbing light and learning and doing the negredo inner alchemy of the lesser mysteries and then when you move to the white robe and the greater mysteries you are then projecting that light the solar light out like Cahalan. Forgill's solution was the answer of youth and perhaps Yeats's difficulties with the play stem from the fact that he had outgrown these inadequate answers before he finished the final version. It's very interesting. Certainly, the work underwent many revisions. 
Nonetheless, when Yeats began the search for a new style through which to express his developing philosophy, he was not forced to abandon Celtic imagery. On the contrary, he learned that by getting into an original relation to Irish life, he was able more fully to know himself. Philosophy being biography, as Yeats said, he found that the study of Celtic myth caused him to recreate himself both as a man and as an artist. The Celtic mysteries failed to become an established occult order, but they were an essential step in Yeats's creative evolution. Through them, he achieved intimate understanding of mankind's true face, and he used Celtic symbols time and again to embody that knowledge. By 1917, with the Paramica Silentia Lune, Yeats had begun to create his own mythology, but in 1938, the year before his death, Yeats turned again to Cahullin. The Death of Cahullin was published in Last Poems and Two Plays in 1939, the year Yeats died. He turned to Cahullin in Celtic myth to express those themes of life and death which were uppermost in his mind. By then, Yeats was 73, a very old man looking something out of mythology himself. He had learned that life was a tale sung by a harlot to a beggar man. Thanks for listening. I uh, recorded this commentary because I think uh, this content is really interesting and a great way to bookend the lecture I'm giving at Pantheacon tomorrow. And uh, so this will be there for anyone who uh, um, wants to follow the lecture with some uh, notes and a deeper dive into some of the concluding thoughts of uh, Lucy Caligara and her unpublished PhD dissertation on Yeats's Celtic Mysteries, which are really the uh, crucial piece that was missing from my 1990 publication of the Celtic Mysteries of W.B. Yeats, Irish Gods, Myths, and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, which, of course, you can get online. Anyway. Iowa, Slantua, Conks on Packs. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk and as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.